welcome back to the Conspiracy Manifesto, where each week we peel back the layers and the lies behind the greatest mysteries in the universe. Hello, everybody. It's your host, Brooklyn Moon. Welcome back. I'm excited you're here. Found a couple of new followers and seen a lot more viewers lately. It's accelerating in movement and it's really exciting to see. Thank you so much for tuning in. Make sure to follow at The Conspiracy Manifesto on Instagram or Reddit. Hopefully soon we'll be on TikTok. And I'm working on getting all these on YouTube. So lots of places to stay tuned. Instagram is the best place for updates. I'll post when new episodes are coming out. Moving forward, they will be coming out on the 5th, 15th, and 25th of every month until I get that other person on board. It's just not possible for me to make tons of episodes. As much as I want to, I'd rather have quality over quantity. So that's how it's going to work for now, but tons of changes and growth happening in the works. I'm able to dedicate more time to this. So yeah, looking forward to what's to come in the new year. Spotify has now started doing rating systems. So if you listen on there, or even if you don't, it's really helpful to take a second and just go leave a one to five star rating. Whatever you think of the podcast, sometimes just numbers help get seen. So that's really helpful. I appreciate your time and your feedback, especially anybody who has reached out to me on the website. Those have been so fun to read. I love hearing what people think. And it's given me so much more confidence, if you can't tell, with every episode. I just am falling more in love with it and hoping that more people will listen so that I can do this more. So really appreciate everybody who reached out, Double Agent, Carlos C., and Courtney C. And Courtney C., I really wanted to reach back out to you, but you didn't leave a reply email. So please reach back out ASAP so that we can discuss what you're interested in in terms of becoming co-hosts and yeah we can go from there and then that brings me to my third announcement so obviously i wanted to come back with a new season and new host etc etc and ads like i had mentioned prior but I don't want to just find any company. I've reached out to some specific ones. And until I find the right one, I will just continue to make content for free. Because at the end of the day, I'd rather it be sources that I'm ethically willing to represent. And that you guys will be interested in being interrupted by. So that's to continue. And I will continue to post episodes just me until I find the right person and no more of the season format it will just be sequential episodes moving forward so yeah that's pretty much the announcements there today's topic it's gonna be on the history of astrology types of astrology 
and how to apply it to our everyday life through reading a natal chart or looking at transits. And I'm going to talk about some placements that I personally look at as an astrologer. And then we'll also take a look at some of the major 2022 astrological transits, which if you don't know what a transit is, we'll go over that later. But I just wanted to start with the fact that I'm not a master astrologer. I believe that would be 10 plus years, but with astrology being as complicated and diverse within different cultures, it would be impossible for me to know everything. So I'll say I'm an intermediate. I've been loosely studying astrology since 2013 and more intensely studying since 2016. And I definitely feel confident giving people readings on their chart, but there's so much more for me to learn. As you'll discover, I know very little about Vedic astrology or Hindu astrology and a lot more about Greek astrology. And that's kind of my lane that I resonate with and read from. So there may be a little bit of bias there when I'm talking about how I apply it to my life. So take that with a grain of salt, look into the different types as I'll kind of summarize them and yeah, find what resonates with you in terms of how you think the universe is influencing us. So let's get into it. Astrology is truly as old as humanity itself. What I was talking about earlier with Hindu astrology, it's also referred to as Vedic astrology, Vedic, Vedic, potato, potato, or Hindu astrology, sidereal astrology. There's a couple different names for it, but, and it has a couple different faces, to be honest with you. Not every Vedic astrologer will think the same. Same with every Hellenistic astrologer. Not everybody is going to read the chart the same, which is why a lot of people think that it's junk. And you can think that if you want. You have every right to think that. So, anywho, Vedic astrology can be dated back to the Indus civilization, which is the oldest and earliest civilization known to the earth. Approximate time is about 3300 before Common Era. And Vedic astrology was associated with the study of the Vedas, which is Hindu scripture. The oldest known text of Jyotisha, which is the Vedic study of astrology, it's translating directly to heavenly body. That oldest text is dated to 1400 before Common Era. It's called the Vedanga Jyotisha. And that would be the oldest known study of astrology. That's likely not the oldest text, but it's the oldest discovered of the oldest known study of astrology. So that's not the oldest text. There's some text from Sumerian astrology that's a little bit older, but it's the oldest study, if you see what I mean. Vedic astrology is fairly different. Granted, it has a lot of similarities. It uses the same 12 zodiacs, uses a lot of the same planets, and it uses the lunar node system. 
So a lot of things are very similar, but one main difference is the actual house system. So if you've ever seen a natal chart, the pie chart, the circle that's broken down into different sections is something that's a major difference between the two studies. They actually calculate the points based off of fixed stars, which is the sidereal. It's sidereal translates to as known by the stars or something like that. And the more commonly known astrology today uses the tropical method of equinoxes. And the only true difference that it's caused over the thousands of years that astrology has been studied is 24 degrees, known as the precession of equinoxes, where those equinoxes has, have actually shifted over time. And Greek astrology hasn't changed. It hasn't necessarily accounted for that change. It, the way that it's structured, it doesn't, it's not really relevant. Whereas in Vedic astrology, it was. And so if you look at your sidereal chart, most of your signs would be backwards. So if you're a Capricorn, you would be a Sagittarius in whatever placement that was. Or it depends. You would move 24 degrees. So depending on where it was, could be in the same zodiac or shifted backwards one or even two. No, it couldn't move two. No, just one. <laughs> so Vedic astrology is extremely complicated. In both, you pull you know, multiple charts. If you're giving someone a reading, you might get their natal chart or their chart of their marriage or the chart of their child's birth, just to give them the most comprehensive understanding of their experience and their lessons. Whereas a Vedic astrologer would pull hundreds of charts in order to fully understand their client and use these charts simultaneously, such as looking at, you know, certain years of their life and pulling electional astrology, which is specific dates and trying to map out their life, which any astrologer could do, but that's a major part of the Vedic process, practice is actually pulling all those different things to actually give a real reading. Whereas sometimes all I really need is their birthday and their time and their city and I'm good to go. So yeah, they they take it very seriously, it's very closely related to their religion, the Hindu spirituality, which has multiple gods, and a lot of the planets have different names, and they're associated with different times of the day, and different gods, like I said, and yeah, it's it's really complicated. I know very little about it. I did a lot more research on it in this, and was even above my head, so I really hope to look into it more. Hopefully I made you maybe interested to look into it. A lot of it has been translated from Sanskrit to Latin and then Latin to English. And Sanskrit is the oldest language on earth. So that's pretty special, pretty exciting, and something that holds a lot of power to the sidereal and Vedic astrology is that ancient to it. It's obviously at the most time to evolve and something to it, the knowledge they must have had back then when you start to align it with aliens or 
different introductions at that time. Who knows where they got that information? And I know I want to get my hands on it. So, yeah, that's Vedic astrology. Like I said, dating back to the Indus 3300, but then you come forward to 2500 BCE, where you have Sumerians in Babylon who really developed the heart of Western astrology. And this was eventually taught to and developed on by the Greeks. One thing I find super interesting about this discovery of astrology was how they used the sky as a clock, basically. So if you looked at the sky and you broke it into the 12 hours of the clock, which is how it was developed into the 12 houses that we use today. So they were using it as a, as a form of measurement. And these patterns would move around the clock. You would see certain Jesus, certain planets moving throughout and then going through retrograde and going through these different patterns. And they would chart, you know, experiences that they were having at different times, you know, when Jupiter was in the eastern point of the sky, things that would happen. And as astrologers got older, they would see patterns and returns. And this is the study of how astrology became to be, and it was very closely related at the time to astronomy. Astronomers, mathematicians, and astrologers all went fairly hand in hand. It's not as taboo as it is today to try to interpret things on a different level, and we'll get to that. But anywho, they used it for everything. They used it to predict their weather, their economy, their leadership, war, marriages, pretty much anything you could think of. And they're credited with the development of that 360 degree chart with 12 30 degree houses. And that's the foundation of most astrology today. Even parts of Vedic has adopted what the Sumerians were using. And like I said, they eventually passed this on to the Greeks. And this gave birth to Hellenistic astrology in approximately 280 before Common Era. And the difference that came with the Greeks once they had a bit more influence from Ptolemy and the other astronomers of the time they actually accounted for the axes tilt in the earth, which really changed the way that people were reading charts and made headway for what's known as the Placidus system, which was not really mathematically developed until the 1500s. But the Greeks were the first to incorporate the 12 zodiacs, as we have them now, Aries through Pisces. And they were also the first to use the planets, including Pluto and the sun and the moon, in a model. But a lot of this was due to the influence from Ptolemy's solar system model. And a lot of it was a major simplification, even coming from the Sumerian model, but especially coming from Vedic astrology, which is far more complex complex. Jeez, I'm really having trouble here today, guys. (laughs) 
but most of the other astrology systems that had been up to this time had hundreds of placements that somebody could read in a chart, whereas now you had the different levels, the house, the planets, the zodiacs, and then the aspects, the geometry between them, but it still was quite the simplification. And a lot of people would argue that it's missing a lot of the placements that are important to read. And not only the placements, but more of the underlying spiritual meaning that Vedic astrology really takes into consideration. Whereas Western astrology that stems from Greek and Sumerian astrology is far more of a methodical science than it is a spirituality, even though it's classified with esoteric or occult understandings. It's definitely just a science. At least that's how I understand astrology. I don't do a lot of psychic interpretations. I feel comfortable with my psychic gifts, but I don't feel like they're necessary in astrology because I think that the placements speak for themselves and they mean something and that meaning can be interpreted, but it's a patterned meaning. So it's almost like if you think of those, what were those binomial nomenclatures in biology where you would code different biology life forms to different codes or even if you're just doing like Morse code or you have those codes that they make in the military it's similar to that to me that's how I understand astrology and because I've been raised with western astrology and focused more on that Hellenistic aspect of and Placidus also. So the Placidus house system, let's get into the house systems because this truly is the basis for reading astrology, especially the way that I read. I really look at the house system first as the first layer and then you read the first layer and then you understand the second layer, almost like you're baking a pie. You need to get the crust ready and the house system is the crust. So there's a ton of different house systems. Don't forget to check out the episode website. I included all of the house systems there and a ton of resources. And if you're a visual learner, you can follow along with me on the figures on the episode website because I will reference several of those. And by the way, the episode website is theconspiracymanifesto.com forward slash episodes. And until I can get the menu to work with my dang website layout, then for now, unfortunately, you have to scroll to each episode. So if you just scroll down, look for episode 14, Astrology and 2022, I'm going to reference a couple of those figures in there because it is really hard to understand without actually looking at it. So if you're not driving and you're not working, hopefully you could pull it up so that it makes a little bit more sense. So in Western astrology, there's a huge debate between whole houses and Placidus houses. So if you want to scroll down to the figure where you see two different charts, there they have a blue hue around it and a bunch of blue and red lines and yeah kind of looks like boobs so scroll down to that on the left side is the placidus chart now the placidus chart is going to have 
different sized houses. It's not a fixed size house. So that's one major difference you'll see because whole houses are always going to be that 30 degrees. Another major difference, as you'll see, is that the first house on the right side, the whole sign houses, are always going to start at the first house cusp. So your first house is going to start right there, and then your ascendant may be at a different point. It's not always going to be on that cusp, whereas for a Placidus chart, your ascendant will always be on the cusp of the first house, and then the house is kind of built off from there. But like I said, they could be different sizes, and they can have multiple zodiacs in it. For example, your first house could be Libra and Scorpio, whereas in a whole sign chart, they're going to move those zodiacs within a certain house. So your house will be adjusted based on, you know, to get only one zodiac within that house. So your first house will only be Gemini or Cancer, not both. And that are, those are some of the ma major differences between them. And can't really think of any other ones. The a Vedic chart would look fairly different to this as well, by the way. But these are the main charts that I can speak on confidently and the differences between them. And like I said, I actually used the one on the left, which is the Placidus chart. And Placidus is very much a time-oriented system. So it's helpful to think of it, like I was explaining earlier, like a clock on the sky. And your ascendant, which some people refer to as your rising sign, and the reason for that is because it's at the point of the sun rising, which is the most eastern point of the sky. So to one degree, you could think of it as a compass. So you have the eastern point and then all the other directions around. But you could also think of it as a clock and that eastern point is going to sit on approximately 7 a.m. and then go around. Your descendant is going to be where the sun goes down and that applies this energy to the chart where the house interpretations are then aligned with that time of the day. My favorite example of this is the 10th house because it's represented by noon on the chart. And just like noon, the aspects that are represented within that chart, such as your zodiac in that house, in your 10th house, and the planets that sit in your 10th house have to do with your personal, or sorry, not your personal, your public life at noon, where you're out and about in the day, you're interacting, that type of energy that you express. So say you have Mercury in your 10th house, Mercury is the planet of communication, you're going to be a very well communicator as long as, you know, the rest is favorable in terms of the sign there as well as the planets aspecting it. But most likely, you'll be a very communicative career person and have a career that's in communication, such as PR or journalism, media, 
entertainment, etc. And you can read a lot of the houses like that by even just understanding where they're at in the day. Across from the 10th house is our fourth house, which is represented by getting close to midnight and is about our private life, our home and our family. And so there's four really important angles within the chart represented by these four significant times of the day, the sun setting and rising, and then noon and midnight. And those are the starting points for the angular houses. And angles are extremely important in astrology. It was developed by a mathematician, so of course angles are relevant here. And those angular houses are, if you're looking at the chart, it's going to be the first house, the fourth house, the seventh house, and the tenth house. And they all are important because they have favorable aspects or angles to the first house. Uh, that was creepy. My Google speakers just went off and they're unplugged. So I don't like that. But anyway, the angular houses are really important. And every other house is relating to those angular houses. And not only that, every house is actually relating back to the first house because it is the beginning of the chart. It really represents that emergence of our energy into the world and our true soul spark that we emanate in this life. And that's really what astrology charts represent. They represent your karmic journey in this soul and the lessons that you're meant to go through, the obstacles that are meant to teach you those lessons, and the support that you'll have along the way to help you fight those lessons or the, the demons that you'll have along the way. So you have your really important four angular houses. And then you have four cicadent and four cadent houses. Cicadent means rising to power. And cadent means falling from power. I believe those were the Greek terms that they had used in order to understand these aspects to the houses. So again, if we're looking at that 10th house on the top, the house of noon, where we're at our public life energy, if you're thinking of the 11th house, that's going to be the cicadent house. It's the supportive house that's rising to help support those planets in there and the lessons there. And then the cadent house is going to be the ninth house, the things that are falling from power and they're falling from that angle of the, the nice favorable angle of the 10th house. Now, each of these angles are extremely important in understanding how to read a natal chart from a Hellenistic perspective. Everything is relating to the first house. Like I said, it's our spark. So each angle is relating back. And this is why there are several houses that are known as unfavorable houses. And those are the second, sixth, eighth, and 12th house. The reason for this is because they don't aspect the first house. And what an aspect is, if again you're looking at the charts above, those geometric lines that go between them, they represent certain 
measurements between them. For example, a square aspect is a 90 degree angle between two planets. And a square aspect is really challenging. And then you have a opposite transit, which is 180 degrees. A conjunction is zero degrees. And you also have a sextile and a trine and some other minor aspects. But these aspects are really important because none of those aspects can apply when you're in the second, sixth, eighth, and twelfth house. None of them can aspect your first house, yourself, your body, your character, and your appearance. And because they don't aspect this, they're seen as the shadow, the things that don't receive the light of the first house and are seen as the the major challenges and the unfavorable houses to be in. The Greek names for these houses, for example, the 12th house is named Bad Spirit, and the 6th house is named Bad Fortune. The 8th house is named Inactive, and the 2nd house is the Gate of Hades, which was the Gate of Hell. So pretty heavy names for these houses, and it's really because they represent some of the more unfavorable aspects of life, which exist and needed a place. So that's where they went. This angular understanding of the 360 house chart was revolutionary and an extremely important part in all of Western astrology. There is, however, like we saw above in the whole house system where each house has its own zodiac and that itself kind of got rid of the house system and here's why I don't like it. A lot of western astrology has tried to take the fact that the new year, the astrological new year in Aries as the sun enters Aries at the spring equinox on March 20th. People take that correlation between Aries being at home in the first house technically and all the other signs sequentially taking place in a house. Then they take that as the signification of each house's meaning as if planets in the first house are just like Aries. And in my opinion, and from what I've seen from everybody that has looked into ancient astrology, that's just not in anybody's study. That's a fairly recent, extremely more summarized version of astrology. And in my opinion, really ruined the way that I was reading charts. It was making me just generalize everything even more, almost like a horoscope, just trying to put everything into every little box. So that's why I don't really like whole science because it kind of rids the idea of a house system. And then you have each house being a certain zodiac. And so it kind of takes away that strong meaning of the house being the base and not the zodiac being the base. But people still use the house significations in whole sign as well as equal signs, which are not that different from Placidus. They will always have 30 degree houses, so you won't have those different sized houses. That's pretty much the only difference, but all of them are very much going to use the same significations unless you're trying to assume that the first house is Aries. Then you're going to have 
some meanings. So I'm actually reading directly from my journal on the significations of the houses. And you can read along with me if you're looking at the figures on the episode website. So like I said, the first house is the self and the body, the character and the appearance. The second house is finances, possessions, income, gifts, substance, and food. The third house represents siblings, education, communications, places you go routinely, your neighborhood, and things that are just always around, kind of like the noise in your surroundings. The fourth house represents home, parents, family, your private life, property, structure, and secrets. Your fifth house represents children, pleasures, creativity, luck, sex and fertility, legacy, attitude towards parenting, and art. The sixth house represents illness, injuries, staff below you, pets, your general health, habits that lead to illness, and busy work, as well as enemies. Sometimes people will put enemies here. The seventh house is the other. So it this is the house opposing your first house of self. So if you could think the opposite of self. And just one point I want to make here is that the first house is the only important truly house because every other house is an aspect of your exterior life. And the first house is the house of you. So that is the most important house in reading somebody and the root of who they are. Everything else is just a lesson in their life and their external. Just needed to make that clear. So yes, and it's opposing house. You're opposing the self is the other. Your relationships, your relationship style, types of people you often meet. So in all types of relationships, coworkers, etc. Emerging of lives, opposition to self. The eighth house represents death, other people's money, inheritance, not just money, but also assets, our partners, loss, grief, loans, taxes, and punishment. The ninth house represents foreign travel people, foreign, okay, foreign travel and people, <laughs> religion, higher education, long journeys, long trips, divination, philosophical, 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 philosophical ideas, transits about direction. The 10th house represents your career, your actions, your public life, your achievements, your reputation, your superiors, and your bosses. Your 11th house is your friends, your groups, alliances, hopes and wishes, your ability to network, and benefits from friends. And then the final house, your 12th house, is going to be seclusion, loss, mental sickness, self-undoing, invisible suffering, and pain before birth or trauma from our previous lives. So when you really look at these significations and compare it to 
if you potentially had a previous understanding through Western astrology that your first house is Aries, and then you compare it to this concept of it being the self, and you go through each house and you really look at it, not much actually aligns. And it's actually a very limiting thing because you're, instead of placing it in the lesson, you're trying to place it in the zodiac. And I'll be totally honest, this genuinely revolutionized the way I read charts. And I only came onto it about two years ago from the astrology podcast, or maybe it was even one year, sometime during COVID. It's all a blur. But the astrology podcast, they're on YouTube and Spotify, all the stuff. They're experts. They are genuinely experts. Chris Brennan, and he has a slew of other hosts that come on, and they're all genius, incredible people that have astrology conferences all over the world. And I've, I've never heard smarter people in my life. Truly, they know what they're talking about. So, highly recommend them, but. Hopefully that was helpful. I know if you're not writing it down, it might have been kind of boring to just hear written out like that, but the significations are the most important thing. And I'm not going to go through all the meanings of the planets or the zodiacs. I think most people know kind of the general gist of what is behind the sun or the moon. And if you don't know, I did include some summaries of those traits also with the other figures. So when I read a natal chart, I will look at the houses first. That's like the first layer. That's the crust of the pie. And then you're going to come in with the juice of the pie, which is the zodiacs. That's like the layer of energy. And then you have the the planets, which are the toppings. Those are going to be the additions. Or maybe if you have berries inside or a jam. And that's going to be the other thing. And then you also have aspects. So maybe that's your whipped cream on top. So first, let's give an example. So let me think of my own chart. The fourth house. Let's look at my fourth house. In my fourth house... The zodiac that takes up most of it is Capricorn. So you can look at my home life, my parents, my family, my private life in terms of Capricorn's energy. It's, it, Capricorn deals with responsibility. They deal with pressure, intensity. They're ruled by Saturn. So they have that intensity, that karmic energy. They're known for business and that's where the responsibility comes in because they feel very devoted to providing uh, it's very dad energy that's what people always associate it with they're also represented by the goat so i've got my house i'm in the fourth house i've got my energy i've got capricorn and then i look at the planets and here is mercury the sun neptune and jupiter so at the moment I was born in the fourth house, which is close to the midnight area, which would be north, I believe, or yep, northeast, never eat soggy waffles. So in the north sector of the sky was all four of those planets. And when you have multiple planets in a cluster like that, we call them clusters, and it's a highlight of energy in those lessons in your chart. 
And actually, all of my planets are in the first to six houses. So I have a huge cluster of energy there. And that's really significant to see that, or even if not, any planet is significant, but that's an intense, t- tight formation. And you see that in people that have a lot of clusters or tighter charts where they have a lot more empty houses. They're a lot more intense people that sometimes have it almost worse because they almost are blind by this intensity or this cluster of energy in one area and they can't really see past it. And I know that was a tangent, but anyhow, I am going to use Mercury as the best example here in my fourth chart, in my fourth house, because then you look at the aspects and this is going to take another level onto understanding this aspect. So Mercury represents communication and my Mercury is squaring my Saturn. And like I said, Saturn's a really intense planet. So squares are challenges. So then I'm going to look at the whole picture now. We've got fourth house, home life, family life, parents. You've got that intensity with Capricorn. You've got that square between Mercury and Saturn. So when you're reading a chart, you kind of have to put all this information together like a little dance. They're simultaneously working together. And that's where usually I lose people in terms of trying to explain to them how complex reading a chart is. And I can understand why it's kind of like, well, where do I start? This doesn't really make sense. And I've tried to provide as many resources as I possibly could for you to put the pieces together. And if I can do it, anybody could do it. So yeah, I hope that makes sense. That's how I read a chart. Those four pieces are the most important. But there are some placements that I'm always really going to focus on. Like I said, the first house is definitely the most that you're going to understand about somebody. And if someone has a planet there, it doesn't get much more intense than that. For example, I have Mars in my first house and I am a very Martian person. I deal with a lot of, in like, I don't want to say anger issues, but frustration issues. It comes out in my ADD and getting frustrated easily and that's a very margin in energy. So if somebody has a planet or two planets in their first house, that energy is going to rule them, truly. Another thing I like to look at is, besides the ascendant, I'll look at the ruler of the ascendant. So my ascendant is in Virgo. And the ruler of Virgo is Mercury. So if you find where Mercury is in my chart, which we just talked about it, it's in the fourth house, that tells me more about my ascendant. So when you really look at my chart, it's pretty intense. And if you understand my family and the company that I've had to take over for them and just the intensity with money, responsibility and grief, loss, all that all comes with the Capricorn energy and all these tight squared angles, as well as the ruler of my soul being Mercury. And also why I love journalism and podcasting and information because 
I'm not only ruled by that Mars, but I'm ruled by Mercury. So, so much you can tell just in the first house about someone. I mean, that tells so much just about me. But you can also look, a lot of people will say, oh, this house is empty. It may not mean anything. And that's not true. Not only does that house represent those lessons still, even if no planets are there, even if your pie doesn't have berries and whipped cream, it's still pretty damn good pie. Even if it's just crust, it's pretty good. So don't think that if you have an empty house, there's nothing going on there. You still have lots to look at. The ruler is something I use a lot in my readings. And in an open house, that's a good one to look at. If you have an open ninth house, say your ninth house is in Libra and Libra is ruled by Venus. So even though you don't have much going on in your ninth house, find your Venus and it can tell you more about the trajectory or the outcome. And that's how a lot of people think of the ruler. It's not just, um, I guess, the, when you think of the ruling energy, it's the leader. It's the one leading the group. Um, but it's also the outcome of that lesson, so to speak. So yeah, ruler is a good thing to look at. If you find the ruler of each house and where it sits, it can tell you a ton more about that house or the ruler of each planet, etc. Lots to look at, or the ruler of each zodiac, I mean. And I also love to look at the nodes. So if you are looking at the figures on the website, go ahead and scroll down and you could see what's called a lunar node path. And that's just the orbit of the sun and the moon. And where they intersect is where we have eclipses and or lunar eclipses. And those nodes then become the north and south node. And so the North and South Node are considered to be karmic lines. And I do believe that does come from Vedic astrology. That's one thing that did definitely get inherited into Hellenistic astrology. And those nodes represent in the South Node, you're looking at karmic energy from past lives. And then the North Node is what you're going to take into the next life. So those are really important they're not planets, they're geometrical points or intersections of orbits and really important nodes or placements to look at. I also really love to look at Saturn. It's just my favorite planet. Clearly, I'm ruled by it intensely. And Saturn can represent restrictions and delays in your life. For example, I have Saturn in my seventh house, which is the house of others, relationships. And I spend a lot of time alone. I haven't had many actual relationships in my life, dating relationships, or many that have gone well. So that's representative of that. A lot of times if you do have Saturn placements, maybe they're in your 11th house, the house of friendships, and you don't make a lot of friends. And maybe that's not because you suck, which honestly I've always thought about myself, but it could just be because of your astrology. No, I'm just kidding. But it, it can be really validating to say, wow, I'm, you know, I'm working through this lesson that was placed in my life for a reason. And so in that way, it has been a religious experience for me in that sense 
growing and understanding myself and validating myself, but also through a a method and a science that I think has a lot to back up. And maybe I can get into that at the end into my own theories, how I think there's proof that the universe has an influence on us. But yeah, anyway, I love Saturn. Always look at it as someone's house in someone's chart. (laughs) Gosh, it's getting late and I'm like getting loopy. So another thing I love to look at the 10th house, like I said, career. Everybody wants to know about their career when you're doing a reading for them. That's most of the time people come to me to look at their career or their relationship. And so the 7th house and the 10th house are really important for doing readings. And then the 5th house as well, because it's related to children and your offspring, especially your firstborn. So if you have an zodiac energy there, maybe it's in Aquarius, it can say a lot about your children, but also the way that your parent, for example, Aquarians are rebellious. So you may be more independent with your children, like give them the independence to be their own person. And a lot of people will want to hear about their likelihood of children. And with Aquarius, it can be pretty tough to say because they could be rebellious and not have any children because it's also the house of fertility and Aquarius represents kind of an independent distant energy because it's that air energy and air signs tend to be a bit more distant often or disconnected and have that tendency to disconnect not that they're always disconnected don't mean that at all but they have a tendency to detach and disconnect from their reality that's one of their coping mechanisms so that's how Aquarius can represent so if you can understand zodiacs what each of them mean then you understand the planets and then the houses just with those three alone you can do a pretty good job at understanding your own chart and potentially it's good to get a friend's chart so that you can do a little bit of reading on both and kind of collect information over time. And the more you know someone and you see those placements in their chart, say they have, you know, a Mercury in Libra in their third house and you get to know them. And then a couple of years later, you meet someone else with a Mercury in Libra in their third house and you see those similarities and it starts to build that deeper awareness of how that is expressed in a chart. And so you start to build those patterns by just reading your own charts and your friends' charts. And that's how I've done it. And I love it. It's helped me understand myself deeper. And I don't think it rules everything. I don't plan every day with astrology. If anything, in the last year, I've been too busy to really think of it much more than the notifications I get on my phone from Time Nomad about where different transits are happening and different things I have saved, it will update me. So besides that, it doesn't have to rule your life. You don't have to not date people because they have certain placements or, you know, think that you're a piece of shit because you have a certain placement. If anything, I could think that about myself, but it's been more empowering than anything to just be validated and see that everything has a meaning and it has a place. A couple other things 
I do like to look at as an astrologer, I'll look at the transits. I mentioned earlier, if you don't know what it is, you will now. But basically, a transit is when you overlay a chart of a certain day. For example, you could look at a transit of today and today's snapshot of the sky in a certain latitude and longitude and place that, overlay it, align it with the houses of the chart of your natal chart, your birth, and look at the aspects. That's the most important thing in a transit chart is the aspects. And you're going to compare it that way. And you could see, oh, wow, Mercury's in my first house this month. I should, you know, really journal and express some stuff, you know, that kind of stuff. Not giving the best example, but transits are extremely helpful. And moving forward, after you know your own chart, there's never you can never know too much. You can never know enough. There's always more to understand and learn. And some of the most important transits I'll just mention are in the sixth house, because the sixth house is the house of health. You will often find health things happening if maybe Saturn is transiting in your sixth house. If your sixth house is in Capricorn right now, Saturn is in your sixth house. And that could be causing a It could have been causing accidents, whether that's a car accident or mental accident. Maybe you're having mental struggles, although that would likely show up in the 12th house. It can show up in your 6th house of health or transits in your 10th house of career, things that are happening in the workplace. Or if things are transiting your 9th house, you might be going on a big trip. Transiting your 8th house, there may be a death in the family and you're inheriting something, or you're dealing with a resurgence of grief from a certain time of the year, there's so many ways to interpret it. It's just an incredible learning experience to learn so much more about your own chart. And there's so many different interpretations, like ways to look at it in comparison to certain dates. And that's what we call electional astrology, which I keep saying we, I don't know who we is, but (laughs) electional astrology is the astrology of interpreting dates and planning things for certain dates based on favorable aspects. For example, weddings, or if you're trying to plan a baby, if people do that still, I'm sure they do with now fertility treatments and stuff so if you're trying to plan a baby or maybe you have a surrogate and you want to plan it out look at astrology have an astrologer plan out the perfect date for your baby and there's also financial astrology and this is huge in wall street and a lot of stock markets you'd be surprised how many people have astrology advisors i personally would love to do that with my experience in accounting as well as astrology i think that would be so cool if somebody hired me just to plan stuff but probably high liability because if things didn't go well not good another thing i like to look at is an annual perfection and if you're still looking on the episode website you can take a look there it's basically a system of 
each year you're on the earth, it's in a different house. So on your first year of earth, it's in the first house. And then as you turn one, it goes into a second house perfection. So right now, actually this weekend, I turn 25 and it is going to be a second house perfection year for me, which like I mentioned with the second house, it's dealing with finances, income and professions. So, or possession, sorry, not professions. Duh, 10th house is profession. But yeah, so who knows what's going to happen to me. Wish me luck. And those are the most important things that I consider when looking into someone's chart and the major types of readings that astrologers will do for somebody as a service. And I highly recommend paying somebody for their service. Do some research, maybe look at their reviews, but it's it's nice it's astrology is tough work people will just try to come and be like what is my career gonna be as if that's some simple explanation when in reality I could write a 10-page essay and most of the time I will write a 10-page essay without even trying because clearly it's just really complex there's so many layers to the astrology pie that everybody has everybody has their own makeup and I like to think of it as you're not a Leo you're every sign in a different dilution every bit everybody's part of the same pie really just different measures of different ingredients and that's what makes the uniqueness of us because when you have that many layers there's practically infinite combinations and it basically debunks one of the major debunks to astrology that not every leo is the same so astrology can't be real or my sun sign doesn't mean anything and sun sign really doesn't mean anything i see sun sign more as a protective mechanism the shield we wear and i know a lot of people say that your ascendant is the mask you wear but that's not how i read astrology i don't resonate with that at all And most of the literature that I read also doesn't use that reference. It's pretty modern Western astrology that uses that metaphor. But our sun sign is almost like our survival mechanism. It's how we attack the world. So maybe when you're in survival mode, how you react to things is more your sun sign than your true personality, which is very much so your first house. And yeah, that's pretty much all I wanted to say about reading natal charts, as well as the other types of charts that you can read. Another really important aspect in astrology that you can apply in your everyday life that's fairly easy without having all the complexity of a natal chart is tracking the moon phases, which I'm sure many of you do, especially women who lines up their menstrual cycle with the moon cycle. But one really cool thing about following the moon cycles is once you understand the interpretation of that, then you can kind of plan yourself to be favorable and Personally, I think when you set yourself up for favorable favorable situations, those situations are more likely to happen. And I'm a planner. I love planning. I got 
the Virgo and the Capricorn, all the earth signs up in here trying to plan my life. So I've always really liked to look into the moon phases where they are in the month can give some type of indication to how you can set yourself up for the month. So starting with the new moon, it's the beginning of the cycle. It's where it all begins. And in ancient times, the new moon was actually a time where women were likely on their period and were meant to stay inside. It was more of a time of going within and kind of clarifying your intentions for the month, reassessing your your life, your choices, and what you're going through. And it's good to set your intentions at that time. I like to do a lot of journaling, kind of do a, a, not a brain mush, not like a brainstorm, but a brain puke where you're just getting rid of all the extra crap in there to allow yourself to rebuild the next month then you have the crescent moon phase which is the waxing moon the moon is getting bigger and brighter she's building her form and it's time to start putting the wheels on into movement with whatever project you're working on for that month so we're putting the wheels on we're starting the foundation at the crescent moon and then the waxing moon gets even bigger into the first quarter moon and this is when you're really picking up acceleration maybe you're networking and it's a little bit more than foundation. You're laying the concrete and you're starting to build more power, getting more people on board and still planning here. You definitely want to have the steps ready so that once action takes over and the plan is in motion, then you had set everything up. Then you get into the gibbous moon, waxy moon, getting bigger even still. And we're building up almost to maximum energy here. This is the phase right before the full moon. So at this time, it's time to be more direct with your actions. The full moon, say if you were planning a party and it was the day of the full moon, this would be the day that you start actually setting up for the party. You start food prepping, planning the decorations, and things are solidified. You shouldn't still be hitting people up or you know, any of the beginning stuff where you're planning and thinking, no, things are in motion, people are on their way, your house better be clean, all that kind of stuff. And then comes the fifth phase of the lunar cycle, which is the full moon. And this is the time that's meant to be the most open and accelerated energy of the month for us. Things are naturally flowing and it's come to a head. So if you've been planning for something or maybe you've been working through some energies, it's going to come to a head that day for the worse or the better, depending on what you've been working on and how you've been working on yourself. So it's a really good time at this time to just be really grateful, be really present in the moment, enjoy what you've been working towards, and just really letting it all play out, following that wave of motion. It's like prepping for a surf, and now you're on the wave. You've got to ride the wave and just enjoy it, soak up the sunshine. Then you move into the disseminating moon. The waning moon 
it's decreasing in size. The party's over. You're kind of shedding that responsibility, that all that planning that went into that. And you might be looking back at that event and saying, what went wrong? Some traits that you maybe want to improve on next time or things that you want to do better, maybe clean better or Maybe you snapped at someone and next time you want to work better on your communication and being more patient with your sister or your mother, because I know how that is. So then you move into the last quarter of the moon cycle. It has reduced in size to half now. And at this time, you should truly be done you know, with those loose ends. You should be moving on completely resting at this time and releasing everything and it gives you a lot of that potential energy you are building up the kinetic energy for the full moon you released it and now you're rebuilding in a sense but it's more of a potential energy it's like the thoughts are happening but it's not ready yet for to plant, for example, if you have a seed, it's, it's getting there, but it's not ready to sprout. So then you have the last stage of the lunar cycle, the dark moon, the balsamic moon, and it's the last of the waning moon sizes. And this is 72 hours before the new moon. And this is the time for silence to go into that high priestess mode and really be putting that energy into what's to come next. It's really this period of pregnancy where you're meditating and just letting the good energy soak up, but you're not putting too much of your own into it. If you know what I mean, you're not ruining it with too much emotion or flailing about you just need to really go within and go silent to prepare for the new moon where again you journal and you release and you start all over again and so that is the lunar cycle and when you tune into that in your month personally it has helped me a ton I love paying attention to those things because I personally have found a lot of benefit from it So I hope you enjoyed all of those interpretations. If you've been waiting for the 2022 astrology, we've made it. It was easily my longest podcast I've ever done. I knew it would be. That's why I had been prepping for it as long as I had because there was no way I was going to mess up astrology. So 2022 is a pretty interesting year. You may have already been feeling it as I'm recording this now, the first week of 2022 in January. There's a lot of Venusian transits going on. We're starting off the year with a major Venus retrograde in Capricorn. So wherever Capricorn is in your chart, take a look at it because Venus is going to be moving back and forth in there for the first couple of months and Venus retrogrades can be pretty intense. Venus as most of you may know is about love relationships uh, but also that dynamic with people not just the communication but intimacy understanding and just a dynamic a transfer of energy between souls and 
that's going to be quite tumultuous in a retro in a retrograde. A lot of retrogrades like to bring up stuff from the past and in a Venus retrograde it's no different. It will be trudging up old memories, maybe trying to think that the grass is greener or fighting about old fights potentially. Lots happening with that Venus retrograde. And like Capricorn does, Capricorn likes to reassess things, and that will be happening in our relationships. We'll be taking a magnifying glass to everything and really making sure that it's compatible with the person that we're becoming. And as Venus is moving back and forth in Capricorn, it will be conjuncting with both Pluto. First, it will conjunct, and then go apart and the retrograde back and then it will move forward from Pluto and Venus will do the same thing with Mars. First it will be in Capricorn and then Venus and Mars will move into Aquarius where Venus is sandwiched between Mars and oops sorry I just knocked over the microphone. Anywho it will be sandwiched between Mars and Saturn and As we know, Saturn is intense, Mars is intense. So Venus will have quite the tumultuous journey for the first couple of months of 2022 until April when it finally escapes and meets up into Pisces with Jupiter and Neptune. And I'm actually really looking forward to this conjunction. I think this will kind of be the first time of 2022 when it's favorable energy. So prepare for some quite intense energy and dynamics in the first quarter of 2022. But come March and April, finally we'll get a little bit of a break. And Jupiter and Neptune is a nice conjunction as well in Pisces because Jupiter likes to emphasize things. It makes things really big. And Neptune is really dreamy and artsy and creative. And this is a known conjunction in times of Renaissance. So I would definitely be expecting lots of albums, movies coming out, art coming out, a lot of changing of logos and platforms, aesthetics, things like that. So we're definitely going to see a big effect of that. But not only an explosion of the arts, because like I said, Jupiter likes to make things really big, really lavish and dramatic. We're also going to see that effect in the economy, which is fairly concerning. I would say come April wouldn't be a very good time to be in real estate or buying too many stocks because things will be inflated, dramatized by that conjunction with Jupiter and any drastic decisions not going to be a good time because you just never know what's going to happen as things are inflated and they start to come back down. And that continues as Mars and Jupiter then go conjunct in Aries. That's another intense placement. So we have a bit of a time of a break, but this can lead to some really angry debates. Mars is 
represented with war often. And when I was listening to the astrology podcast, they actually predicted through comparing to other times of war, both the Civil War and World War II started off with a Mars and Jupiter conjunction in Aries. Quite the interesting correlation there. We'll see what comes with that at the end of April 2022. Once we move into May, Mars actually goes retrograde in Gemini. And Mars will be in Gemini for the rest of the year, which is eight months. So lots of energy there. Mars retrograde can bring up a lot of frustration. For me, I'm really interested to see how that goes in my first house. That's been my biggest lesson is dealing with my temper in a way. I just can get really frustrated easily and kind of give up on things and people. And that's something I'm working on. And so maybe that will happen for me this year with Mars and Gemini. And Gemini, as you know, deals with a lot of that yin-yang energy, that push-pull, the twins, the angel, the devil. A battle will definitely be ensuing with that Mars retrograde for the rest of the year in Gemini. So wherever Mars is in your chart, definitely take a look at that. Saturn, as we know, it is the year of Aquarius or the era of Aquarius and Saturn as well will remain in Aquarius for the rest of the year and in retrograde on and off. Lots of things have happened historically in Aquarius, in the era of Aquarius. For example, it is the Saturn return of the invention of the internet. and. I do believe we will continue to see the internet evolving, more laws around the internet. If you didn't see my Edward Snowden video, I talked a lot about censorship, privacy on the internet, and that has been a prevalent discussion within the last year. And hopefully, as Saturn and Aquarius continues, we will see more of those changes within the internet. Oh, that totally makes me remember that I forgot to mention it earlier when I look at people's charts, things that I like to look at. I talked about Saturn, but I forgot to mention something super important, which is Saturn returns. And Saturn returns happens every 27 to 30 years, which are karmic cycles in people's lives. When you hit your Saturn return, you're meant to just have this karmic shedding basically of all the things you've maybe been refusing, toxic relationships, toxic habits, etc. And a lot of people in astrology think that's why the 27 Club exists because of that intensity going into the Saturn return and all the shedding. And for people that potentially haven't been aligning with their highest selves, they're instantly overwhelmed with dread and regret and A lot of people going through their third Saturn return in their 80s are often going through one of most people's final Saturn return where they're looking back at their life and thinking either they have succeeded or failed. And that's a lot of people going through that third Saturn return. They often become really bitter or just really grateful and happy to still be alive. So I really wanted to mention that because I was bothered by the fact that I did not earlier. And Saturn is 
really important in the chart. The fact that it's in Aquarius has meant so much. There's so much going on. And like I said earlier, it really represents rebellion, which I think is what we're all going through. We're going through this rebellion of the pandemic, going through the rebellion of the systems that are not being upheld the way that they should be. And that's why a lot of people have turned to conspiracies, myself personally, granted long before the age of Aquarius, but I have a lot of Aquarius energy. So there's a a big shift happening here, especially with Saturn squaring Uranus from July to September. This square has been happening on and off for a while, and Uranus is all about shaking shit up. You'll often see Uranus causing natural disasters in certain transits, such as the earthquakes that happened recently when Uranus was in Taurus in retrograde. Lots, I think it was in retrograde, maybe. Don't quote me on that. But anywho, Uranus squaring Saturn this summer, July through September, will definitely create a lot more of that rebellion and shaking things up, creating noise and anarchy and what people don't frankly want to hear. That's what Aquarius is all about. It's making people uncomfortable and then Uranus comes in to shake things up. And I'm really seeing that moving forward. A Saturn in Aquarius is a good time to change the systems as well as ourselves. And it's also going to be squaring Mars in August. Lots of squares. Like I said earlier, squaring is a 90 degree angle. It's very harsh. It's creating a challenge, an obstacle for one to overcome. And that's what's happening here with Mars and Uranus squaring Saturn. They're creating challenges for that shake up to happen for that rebellion to come in and make those changes and mars like i said earlier it's war aggression sexuality and those are going to be some of the challenges presented to that rebellion but saturn doesn't care saturn comes in and it cleans out the karma to do the bidding of what is needed and i hope that's exactly what happens as saturn continues on hopefully it'll get better when it stations direct though because in retrograde it can just kick up stuff almost painfully so one of the other final major transits here is Jupiter and Uranus are going to both go retrograde into the end of the year. So tons of planets going retrograde. And when a planet moves in retrograde, it just likes to, it's almost like four steps forward, or what is it? Two steps forward, four steps back. And that's what retrograde can do. We're moving forward and then all of a sudden we get pulled back and we have to re-go over that patch of grass and make sure that we got every bit and understood the lesson completely. Like they say in a spiral, we continue to go around and learn every lesson deeper. And that's what retrograde can do. Just like Saturn force us to go deeper and really look at the lesson here. Eclipses, we have a 
partial solar eclipse April 30th in Taurus, a total lunar eclipse May 15th in Scorpio, and that one actually squares Saturn as well. So that's going to be a really harsh lunar eclipse in May. And in Scorpio, we all know Scorpio can be pretty devious. So we have a partial solar eclipse October 25th in Scorpio and a total lunar eclipse November 8th in Taurus, which is for the United States, our midterm election. We have a total lunar eclipse and eclipses like we saw earlier with the node transits or the lunar node path and where they intersect creates an eclipse and these eclipses are also very karmic they represent our past life and what we're taking into our next life the karma that we carry with us so a lot of people strongly believe that you're not supposed to do much with eclipses not any major decisions nothing legal nothing major purchases, nothing like that. So it depends on what you believe. I think that eclipses can be really intense, like almost like a full moon where you can, maybe not a full moon, maybe more like the phase right after the full moon where you're just dumping all this energy out. And for me, that's what I do during an eclipse. I'm definitely going to focus on just releasing things, not acquiring things, but releasing them. And yeah, eclipses. Then you got your retrogrades. We got Mercury retrograde, everybody's favorite when nothing seems to work, even though for me, it feels like it's always a Mercury retrograde. (laughs) January 14th, May 10th, September 9th, and December 29th are our Mercury, Mercury retrograde. Everybody loves a good Mercury Gatorade. But if you want an even more in-depth look, please, like I mentioned earlier, check out the Astrology Podcast. I linked them on the episode website, but you could just look them up on the same platform you're on right now. And they are the experts on the astrology info, especially Hellenistic astrology. And they also did a really in-depth 2022 forecast. Highly recommend that as well as a really in-depth look at the significations of the houses. And that was one of the podcasts that revolutionized the way I see things. But I also use a lot of apps. Time Nomad, I mentioned earlier, it's so convenient because you can archive apps. And this isn't even a sponsorship. I just love Time Nomad that much. I have probably 20 people's charts in there, my family members, everybody, and it gives me updates when they're going through major things so I could check on them or, you know, be able to understand astrology more because I see people going through things and then I compare it and take notes and understand through experience, which is the best form of knowledge. So love Time Nomad. I also highly recommend astro.com for just general info and also a place to do your natal chart. You can set up a login and archive them there as well. And it's a very knowledgeable place. I've never found information that wasn't backed up by many other sites and transcripts. So highly recommend that. There's some other apps, however, that I would not recommend. CoStar being the main one, as much as I love them, 
and the pattern and horoscope apps or horoscopes in magazines. It's obviously just a very generalized, simplified look at astrology and could in no way give you customized advice if that's what you were looking for. If you're just looking for a generalized look at something, now that you know more about your planets, maybe look at your moon sign too and see what that energy is. But you just really never know what the background of the horoscope person is. It could just be some journalist that they told to write some nice things for each person. So you just never know. I would stick to the knowledgeable websites, stick to the books, because if somebody's wrote a book on it, they've likely done a little bit of research. So I do like to trust books. I mean, I take everything with a grain of salt. But yeah, I mean, I'll briefly get into my own opinion. I don't even know how long I've been going on at this point, but so many people just want to debunk astrology and see it as a pseudoscience or something that just has no factual basis. And a lot of things that are spiritual or esoteric have evidence, but they're not recognized by modern science. And I would definitely say astrology fits into that category. Maybe not every piece of it, but I think people are taking this really physical approach where we're looking at the pre-existing laws of physics and we're saying astrology doesn't make sense in this context, so it can't be real, which is not how science works. A true physicist sees everything in the world as fake and it must be proven. And I think we'd all benefit from taking a bit of that mindset on of being able to prove things and not assuming them as false or true in any sense of the matter. I like to come at all things with the most unbiased perspective possible. But like I said, we're we're just taking this really microcosmic approach. And even more so, if you think of something in a microcosm, think of this bowl with a, a marble in it and you've got, or maybe multiple marbles, they're all rolling around in the bowl and you've got all the forces of physics moving on it. You've got air, maybe there's a draft in the room, the air is pushing on it. You've got gravity, you've got your your breath or the, the air, maybe the temperature is cold and so the air is moving slower and it's slowing it down and all these forces are pushing on the marble until it eventually comes to a stop. And people aren't thinking about the macrocosm of Earth. We are this marble spinning around in the universe with massive forces playing on us within the universe. You have your orbit and empty space. We don't know very much about empty space and how it's impressing on or affecting our planetary existence which likely there is some type of effect. Everything in the universe has a push and a pull. So if you do want to look at it in terms of pre-existing science, I think there is a lot of incentive to or inclination to lean in the sense that there's more we can interpret interpret from the movements of the planetary bodies because they're not just you know, these external things that have no effect on us. 
And then if you even get any deeper into believing in energy or the source field and you believe that everything is internally connected on a deep energetic level, that's where a lot of people get into astrology, which is the main backing for most people is that everything's connected. How could they not have an impact on us? Maybe they don't have the impact we interpret, but I definitely believe they have an impact. And I could say that pretty certainly. Maybe Mercury doesn't impact our communication because a lot of that interpretation is rooted in the Greek gods and a lot of Vedic astrology is rooted in the Hindu gods. And that's how they understand it. So it could be diluted with our religions or spirituality and the basis. And maybe there will be a further evolution of removing some of those aspects from astrology. But no matter what, nobody could convince me that the planets revolving around us and the universes revolving around us don't impact us. Because that's like saying that nothing impacts the marble in the bowl. Obviously, there's a lot happening to the marble in the bowl. And there's a lot happening to Earth as it's rotating around and interacting with lots of other planets. Like in the Nibiru episode where I mentioned when planets pass in orbit that they have an exchange of energy and there's scientific proof of that. So there's something to it. Gotta love astrology. Gotta love how long this episode was. So excited to get this out. I've been putting so much into it. I really hope it made sense and you guys enjoyed it. And I Just want to say thank you. I'm literally tearing up because this was something I wasn't sure was going to go anywhere. You know, a lot of people start podcasts and give up after a couple episodes, but I've actually gotten enough feedback for me to believe that this is something I could move forward with. And the only reason I started it, I need to compose myself. The only reason I started it was because I was at an astrology convention And this lady looked at my chart and she told me I have a really rare conjunction, which is my moon and my Uranus. And a conjunction is within zero degrees of each other. So they're literally overlapping each other in the sky. And this is called an alien construct, which is kind of like a, or no, an alien complex. One of the two. But it's basically like a god complex but as an alien. So I am constantly feeling like disconnected and it's in Aquarius too. I should mention this placement is in Aquarius. And the only other people that I know that have it are David Icke and Alex Jones. And she basically told me that I was born to talk about conspiracies, to rebel from the government and the major systems and to question things. And then with all my Mercury placements, There was just so much in me for journalism. And she literally told me to start a podcast. And I had never even thought of it. Conspiracies were kind of just something I thought about privately and never even really discussed with my friends and family. So I feel like I really followed my astrological chart. And because of that, good things have come of it. And I've I've invested into so many things, you guys. You have no idea. So many projects and job paths I've tried to follow and it always seems to fall flat on my face and it's been really nice and validating just to see those physical results see the statistics and the numbers and 
at first it was one people, one people, just one people, every day tuning into the podcast and some days now in the last couple weeks it's been a hundred people a day will listen to an episode which is absolutely mind-blowing it makes me want to go back and edit everything because I feel really embarrassed about the first couple episodes but I've just gotten such good feedback I will likely leave some things maybe just change out the theme song if you guys don't mind well, anywho, I just wanted to say thank you guys so much for listening. The continued listeners, you guys have made this podcast what it is. And to the new listeners, may we continue to grow together and make it a better podcast for you all. Please reach out on the website with any feedback, topic inquiries. There will also be links below and on the website to leave a donation if you'd like. I'm not making any money yet from the podcast, so any money is helpful so that I can make it better quality. Let me know if you've heard any difference in the audio quality. I'm doing my best here. I'm not a technical producer, but I might be at the end of the podcast although it should never end. Hopefully, that's the idea. So thank you. Don't forget to follow. And I'll be here next week with more Conspiracy.